Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 111 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we talked about the new iPhones and the many other technology announcements and launches this fall. In this episode, we dive into the growing debate about legal education. President Obama is just one of the people talking about reducing law school from three years to two years, and there's a renewed focus on practical skills, including law practice management and technology being taught as part of the law school curriculum. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we're going to discuss uh Training law students uh, in law practice management, legal technology, and other uh, practical skills. In our second segment, we're going to talk about the end of life for Windows XP, can't believe it, and the options uh, for those who are still using that version of the operating system. And as usual, we'll uh, finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start using the second this podcast is over. But first, let's uh, get started with our main topic, and that's uh, training law students in law practice management and uh, legal technology. Uh, We've been discussing, you and I, Dennis, and and others have been discussing this issue on and off for a while. A couple of years ago, I gave a a presentation at Night Law on the subject uh, about the need for law practice management education in law school. And although people keep talking about it, and it seems to be a subject that I see come up frequently... Uh, in recent years, not much has really advanced on that front, as far as I can tell. Dennis, you speak to law students on a regular basis. Uh, do you see anything new or different happening in law schools when it comes to training future lawyers in uh, legal technology and the business of the practice of law? Well, you're right, Tom. I, I mean, I do speak to, to law students uh, locally, uh, both at St. Louis University and the University of Missouri Law Schools. Uh, both schools have a, a law practice management class of of sorts, uh, and this, I can't remember whether it's the exact title, but that's the the idea of the classes. And what's interesting in in both cases is they they do use a lot of guest speakers to to bring people in to talk about different aspects of of the practice. And I usually get assigned, of course, uh, talking about the technology side of things, and it's it's really fun. I've been doing it for years, and and uh, I didn't realize uh, until I saw uh, the blog post earlier this year by Richard Granite, who's trying to count the number of school, of law schools who actually had law practice management courses, that those types of courses are really pretty rare. So um, I maybe got like a little bit of skewed view, or maybe this, the, the local law schools are, are pretty progressive in, in, in what, what they're doing. But I find that really enjoyable. The, the law students are, are interested in, in technology, and I think it's in the whole practical side of things, because I think law school tends to get a little theoretical, and uh, you know they've started to work in some cases. Usually, it's it's third year, sometimes second years in the in the classes. So they've done some work, so they've had experience of actually, you know, doing legal work, and 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 so they are more interested in, in what's happening, you know, especially on in the area of technology. And then I also think there's a, a sense that, that maybe there are ways to incorporate some of these things into the actual teaching. I always had this idea that if, 
if I were ever teaching legal research and writing, I would make people keep track of their time and, and give them like an hourly rate. And then if they wrote a memo, like part of the things you'd factor into the grade would be how much a client would have to pay for the memo that, uh, you know, you wrote in your legal research <laughs> and, and writing class, because I think it would be really instructive. And then when I was an adjunct, you know, I guess about 10 years ago now that at, at Washington University Law School here in St. Louis, and we did, I would co-taught a class on uh, basically intellectual property licensing and drafting. And so it was a practical, practical skills course. But usually when my uh, co-professor was away, I would take the time uh, in the class to say, okay, here's, here's the drafting assignment and here's how you would do it if you were, were doing the work. Here's the programs we'd use. Here's how much time you would have. Here's the approach you would take. Here's how where you might use track changes. Here's how you know how how you would negotiate. And and the students were really responsive to that. They, they, in a way, they they were like, "Oh my God, we never, you know, seen things taught this way." And and they wished they could they could get more of that. And and uh, and and they also talked about having a class ex- in exactly that topic. So I think there's always been interest. Um, and it bubbles up from time to time, but it seems it's really coming to a boil about right now. No, I agree that it is, and, and but I, I think that it's important, you know, in kind of researching the topic and and trying to figure out what uh, what we wanted to talk about today. I was I was looking out at at the discussions that various people are having, and I think that it's important to clarify that that there are a couple of different discussions here. There's a there's a an argument going on um, in the in the law professor community about the need uh, to, to create the, what they call the practice-ready lawyer. And I want, to, uh, I, want, I want to make clear the distinction that they're making here, that the practice-ready lawyer to many law professors really doesn't take into account law practice management. It doesn't take into account legal technology, which I think demonstrates at least a part of the problem that we have is that professors still aren't completely thinking in this way. They aren't thinking the way that, that we would want them to think. Although the practice-ready lawyer, I think, is a noble goal. It's, it's obviously something that we want to have, but, but it's, it's a completely different subject. There are, uh, there's been a, a lot of talk lately about, can you create a practice-ready lawyer in this version of law school? One professor who wrote on it called it a, a millennialist fantasy saying that the range of skills needed to prepare, prepare law students for the private market is just too large. And I think that there may be some truth to that, but uh, I, I think that a practice-ready lawyer from a law practice management standpoint probably isn't impossible uh, in terms of what they need to, uh, what they need to accomplish and, and what the, you know, the, the, the different types of firms. I think that the level of, of practice management education should be comparable depending on what you want to do. But here's, here's the problem that I have, Dennis. I think that the class you describe and the skills that are, are, are being taught are, are all well and good, but you also have a push from others. And like you mentioned, President Obama came out very publicly in the last couple of weeks and, uh, and mentioned how he thought that law school should really only be two years instead of three years, um, reduce the amount that a, uh, the, that a person can learn in school, but, but then coupling that with sort of an internship. And I think that's a maybe uh, he didn't necessarily say this, but that's his way of producing the practice-ready lawyer. But uh, you know, the, the biggest criticism of reducing uh, from three years to two years is that it's going to expose students only to survey-type courses. It wouldn't prepare them for specialties, for learning about particular areas of law that they wanted to learn about. 
And, you know, to extend to our topic, it certainly wouldn't extend, you know, it wouldn't allow them to take law practice management courses. They would have to spend all two years dealing with things that, uh, that, that you know, the very basics of a, of a legal education, how to think and act and speak and write like a lawyer. And so I, I, worry, that, I worry that that type of, of, of moving to that, it, while it's all well and good, and while I think having an internship as a third year is a, a, possibly a valuable experience, I think an internship is valuable whether it's in the third year or right after law school. I just don't see, I see law practice management t- curricula taking a backseat to everything else in that respect. Yeah, I mean, there are, uh, I mean, a couple of things there, Tom. I, I think there's always been this notion, uh, that internship thing. And I, I, when I was at uh, a big firm, I always felt that the idea was that sort of big firms out of the goodness of their hearts would you know, create these internships for law students that would they would <laughs> polish their skills and you know in their whatever third fourth fourth year and and people look to sort of the model I think of of doctors and residency and but there's a big difference between hospitals and and I think the the private law firms that people were looking to um, to provide this role and. You can think, and we've gone through some tough years in terms of the economy for all law firms, and and the idea that those private law firms can kind of be put into the mix of law schools is is really a tricky one and and difficult to conceive right now. I mean, but you're also seeing the flip of that now because of the economy. You're seeing law schools figuring out ways to to create intern programs and ways to hire their graduates. You know. And in, and some people feel that they're starting to compete with the with the the private law firms. So there's a lot of dynamic out there, I mean, and that's what I think is really interesting. That a lot of things are are being tried. So it could be practical skills, sort of a new concept. Um, the the clinical approach, which you know, I had, I went to Georgetown to to law school, and Georgetown really pioneered a lot of the clinical stuff. So that's been around for you know 30 years. Um, and, and so you see maybe that third year is the notion of a clinical year. Um, I haven't really given a lot of thought to the two years versus three years. I just felt like the third year was the chance I had to specialize and I learned the, the most and finally got to take the classes I wanted and to, to take that away. I'm, I'm not, I'm not really sure that's, that's the, the best of idea, but but we are certainly seeing some developments. I know Tom, Although it's it's hard these days to say to describe our involvement as being much more than minimal, but we we've been involved in the the legal skills prof blog for you know since the beginning, and and so there's a lot of discussion out there about uh, about incorporating skills into the to the curriculum. Well, and there have been surveys. I mean, uh, recently they uh, I think it was Kaplan surveyed law students on, on what they believed a legal education should, should be. And, and 97% of the people responded saying that, uh, that they would eliminate third-year electives and replace it with practical training. Uh, again, we're still talking about legal skills. We're not really talking about law practice management skills. Um, but what's interesting about that is, and, and that really goes toward the idea of having this practical skills, uh, clinic-based, internship-type type curriculum, um, but right in your own backyard. I, I can't remember the website that I found it, found it in, but uh, Washington and Lee Law School had gotten some, 
some pretty Im- interesting press in the past for, um, for what they called an experiential third-year program where the law students got a lot more practical experience. But I think that this blog post was reporting that their employment outcomes were actually worse than those of similarly, similarly ranked schools. Now, I don't know that, that that means that the experiential model is a failure, uh, but that's what critics are saying, is that it's, it, 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 it certainly doesn't work. I don't know that there's a correlation there, but um, I, think it's, I think that's interesting to, to see that, that their lawyers who are trained with skills are apparently not any more valuable out there in the, uh, in, in the marketplace than, uh, than those who are receiving a traditional three-year education. Now, of course, the, the lawyer who, or the law professor who believes that all of this is sort of this millennialist fantasy really believes that uh, placing law students in jobs, and this is really where I think is the other, the other issue, that, and it's a separate issue, is, is the legal job market, is that uh, right now the legal job market is hurting and that the goal of law students should be, or law school should be to place students in jobs. And, and, and the, the cynical approach is that uh, placing law students in jobs has more to do with the law school's reputation than its curriculum. And I think, unfortunately, that may be the case with a lot of law schools. And uh, I, I, I think even though I th- we're, we're seeing some innovative things come from some schools, I really think that there is still not, you know, just like you, you mentioned, there are not a lot of uh, law practice management courses being taught. And I think what's important to, to, to know about that is, is that they are being taught in, co- in law schools around the country, but one, they're not mandatory. And two, they're not consistent. They're not every year. They're just whenever uh, they can find professors to teach the class, whenever there's an interest shown in it. Um, and like you said, most of those classes are to have to be taught by adjunct professors because the, the majority of the law school professors have never really practiced uh, any type of uh, law to be able to teach law practice management uh, topics. Yeah, and the classes uh, that I've spoken to are fair, relatively small. I would say usually about 20, 20 people. Um, you know, so, and it's an interesting mix of people. It's not just people of, I mean, it's a range. I, I, I expect to see more people who are just planning to start their own firm after, after law school, but, it, but it's, a, it's a mix of, of people. Some of them are, you know, already have jobs. Somebody are, some are still looking and, and some are, you know, have an interest in technology or trying to figure out, you know, ways that they might, they might use that. But I think there are a number of experiments out there. I mean, we've, we've talked about some of them on the podcast time. I mean, I think there's cool things happening at, uh, at Michigan State, at Georgetown with its iron tech competition. I think it's Suffolk Law School is, is uh, you know, has put a focus on some of the law practice management topics. There are, there are a number of them out there. And I guess that um, you know, friends of ours have been in, involved in that, and so there's a, there's a need, and and you hope that the schools kind of reach out uh, to, you know, I mean, frankly, Tom, to people like us who've who've been involved in in this for a while, and not take a an academic like an overly academic approach to practical skills, which you know probably would turn out to be one of the you know the worst of all worlds. Well, and and I, I've been I've been talking with others about uh, uh, others who are involved in, in law school education who are talking about uh, different ways to introduce law practice management skills and um, and and specifically really practice management, not really the practical skills that a lot of the professors are talking about, 
um, and, and in which they are doing, I think, some really interesting and innovative things. And really, in, instead of instead of necessarily having classes that people have to take, trying to weave the idea of law practice management through the entire curriculum all three years. So when you're a first-year law student, you're going to get access to a cloud-based case manager account like Clio, Rocket Matter, my case, one of those tools. You get access to it so you can start using it from day one. You're comfortable with it. You understand what it does, and, 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 and you can use it throughout your whole law school career. Uh, when you take, a, for example, an employment law class, one of the things that'll happen in, in addition to learning about the law of of, of, of hiring and firing, you actually learn how to hire and fire an employee. When you take a business corporations class, in addition to learning about the law of the formation of corporations, you actually learn how to form a corporation. You learn how to read a financial statement. You learn how to, uh, to do the other business-related things that you would be doing. Uh, I, I think, and, 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 and you and I have talked uh, about uh, the, the, the article by Richard Granite and Steph Kimbrough uh, that they wrote. I think it's a great article um, on the need for more legal technology education in schools and how and specifically how law students need to be trained in that. Um, my, if I had a criticism, it would be that they spend most of their time talking primarily about technology. They do get into some other business development and they touch on marketing, but it has more of a, of a technology base to it. I really think that this talk about trying to weave in law practice management concepts with the with the, the, the topics that you're already teaching in law school, the general, overall, broad legal concerns that people are having to deal with already in law school, um, is really a smart way to, to think about it. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to seeing where that sort of uh, idea goes. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the article you're talking about is called The Teaching of Law Practice Management and Technology in Law Schools, A New Paradigm. It's in, uh, it's in the Chicago-Kent... Uh, Law Review sometime in 2013. I can't tell from the page numbering here exactly what issue that was, but people should be able to find it. Uh, Richard Granite and Stephanie Kimbrough. They, it's a manifesto of sorts because they start out uh, early on saying the law school curriculum is wholly inadequate to train future lawyers in law practice management and technology. And it kind of, it kind of goes from there. So I think that um, it's... I kind of, in a way, I disagree with that a little bit because of what you were just saying, Tom. I don't know that the curriculum itself is is the problem. It's sort of the application of of teaching to that curriculum because you can't incorporate the law practice management and the technology in into the core curriculum and in those types of classes. It's just a different approach to teaching. I think that's going to be a difficult one because, uh, you know, Tom, we were talking before we started recording uh, that you're in the law school setting, we're still hearing about this, you know, law professors saying no laptops in the classroom and being so <laughs> anti-technology. And then if you're saying, not only are you not incorporating legal technology, law practice management into that, into the, those courses, but you're very negative on technology. And then lawyers have a reputation of, of not being early adopters on technology as it is. It, it just creates a really negative environment for law students when it when it comes to technology and and i I think that's a difficult thing and to say you know I don't know that it's realistic I mean you know to say on the one one day somebody's going to say no laptops in my classroom, but I can also but we're also going to teach that same person is going to teach legal technology to to law students I don't really see how how that works uh, so I, I think 
it, it's really a time where the you know the experimentation I think is is the important thing, and and that's what I think the the focus on all of this is is really important may open the conversation. And we may go back to I mean, the other thing you were talking about, Tom, is that really when you see where technology you know, made a big entrance into the practice of law, um, you know, by means of law students, I go back to, to Lexis and Westlaw with giving, you know, free access to their research services. And then those students came out and gradually, I mean, it took years, of course, but that, you know, brought that more in into the practice. And so I, you know, there have been other examples, case map, um, you know, other legal software companies have made their product available uh, to law students. Some of the, you know, some of the software companies have made their programs available to clinical students, especially in, uh, you know, some of the low income clinics and stuff where they can kind of get their software out and in the hands of law students and also do good uh, for people. So, you know, lots of experiments out there, I think, have really been interesting. No, and I think I think the, the Lexus and Westlaw model is pretty smart. I mean, uh, it was kind of a it was kind of a crack model. Uh, they they offered the free service and got everybody hooked. And by the time they got out to the law firms, um, they were relying. And you know, there's ups and downs to that. There's there's there are pros and cons to that approach. And 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 one of the first things I had to teach my new associates when I was the associate liaison in the firm was um, was was four words that they had to understand: no more free Lexus. Uh, and they had to understand that the client was paying for that or the firm was paying for that. And so there's, there's uh, on the one hand, I think it's very smart to get law students comfortable and incorporated with technology. And these generations of law students are better able to deal with that than ever before. And so that's why I think that, uh, you know, for, for every law school that has professors that don't like students to put laptops in, um, I'm hoping that we start to see more that are doing like the Iron Tech competition at Georgetown and encouraging their law students to uh, to experiment with technology and find new ways uh, to deal with things. So I I think that 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 the one thing that's consistent so far that that I'm seeing today is the inconsistency with the way that law schools are dealing with this process. And um, one of the one of the proposals that I saw was that the the law schools get together with the bar with the practicing lawyers, because frankly, uh, and this is no slight to law professors, the ones who haven't practiced just don't have that experience that are needed to to teach legal technology and teach law practice management skills. But the bar members are uniquely qualified for that. And I think that that there's got to be a collaboration there somewhere where they get together, they work things out, and they manage to, 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 to come together with something that is beneficial to not only the law students, but also to the profession as a whole, because it, it, there's too much of a divide right now between those two groups that, uh, that, that I, I really think that working together, I think it can be a big step in solving this problem. Any last thoughts to take us out of this segment, Dennis? Well, I had two last thoughts. So one, one just came to mind as you were talking is that uh, a friend of mine, Nick Terry, is, is now a, a dean at uh, Indiana University in Indianapolis at the law school there. And and years ago, he had this idea that today we'd say that basically the legal profession is too siloed. You know, there's, there's the law schools, there's the big firms, there's the small firms, there's the bar associations, there's, you know, in-house lawyers, everybody's in their different silo. And Nick had this idea, and we kind of experimented with this in the early days of the internet to say, wouldn't it be great if you kind of connected up the practicing lawyers 
with the professors, with the students, and you know, figured out some way that you could kind of share what was going on, the practical and the, the theoretical, and you know, get people to work together. And then the community would be better served because you're breaking down those silos. So I, I think that becomes you know, an interesting approach, and technology uh, certainly enables that. Um, the other thing is yesterday I was talking to a good friend of mine who's uh, in-house counsel, and, and she was talking about her outside law firm, and she was raving about the young lawyers because they had this great ability to use uh, the, the, the teleconferencing system to uh, collaborate on documents, and they had like their own scripts that would allow these things to happen. And she said it was absolutely amazing. And she had the highest opinion of the lawyers in the law firm because their young lawyers were so tech savvy. And I, I think that's so that's coming from the client side. And so I, I think that um, I just find that really instructive. And so as people think about what might be the value of, of having new lawyers come out who are, you know, trained in technology and savvy in technology, I can see the clients. Uh, would absolutely appreciate that. So, so I think there's, as I said, there's a lot of experiments going on. I'd like to see even, even more. Uh, I mean, you know, Tom, you know, with our friends and when we go to the, a, you know, ABA law practice meetings, we're always bouncing around ideas on, on this topic. So I, I think there's a lot of good, a lot of good ideas out there. And we kind of break down some of the silos and figure out ways to people can work together. I think we can uh, come up with some cool things. You know, I promise you the last word, but I have to say there are a lot of great lawyers out in the community who are contributing and, and are donating time to their, their law schools by, by serving as, as adjunct professors. But, but I, I think that I have to distinguish that and say that they're mostly teaching practical skills. They're doing trial skills classes and, and other things that, that are more germane to their own practice rather than teaching the business of the practice of law. And that's really something that lawyers and law students still get short shrift on when, when they're getting a legal education. That's really where I think that, that the experimentation really needs to, needs to continue. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. The great How to Geek blog had a really terrific post the other day on options for the, for the many people, and there are many people still using Windows XP. Windows XP was launched in 2001, and Microsoft has announced that support for Windows XP will end on April 8th, 
2014, and they seem to really mean it this time. Uh, they, actually, the end of support for Windows XP has been announced uh, many times, and it's been pushed back. But this time, I don't think Windows XP is getting a reprieve. There are a lot of issues, security and otherwise, with using XP these days. And there are also a number of options uh, for X, XP users. Tom, we haven't really talked about Windows for a while, so this might be, we thought it'd be a good time to talk about Windows options and what XP users should consider um, as the end of life approaches for Windows XP. Tom, what should lawyers be still using XP be thinking about? In, a, in one word, upgrading. Uh, I, I, you know, admittedly, Windows XP was a great operating system. It was a great version of Windows. Um, and that's why I think there are so many lawyers who are still using uh, the operating system. And, and, and I think part of the reason why you, if you're using it, you might still be using it is because its follow-up, Windows Vista, was not a great tool. It was not received well. It was clunky. It was a problem. People uh, were turned off by the generally negative reviews. And, uh, and so they stuck with Windows XP. And then when Windows 7 came along, um, which actually is a fantastic operating system. I very much enjoy working with it. I think that it is, a, it, it is what Windows Vista should have been. It is the, the worthy successor to Windows XP. It's, 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 those of you using Windows XP didn't really see a compelling reason to move up to 7, but now you have no choice. Now um, there, are, uh, there are many, many bad reasons to stick with Windows XP, the, fa- the, the major one of which is that the, the, the older the software, uh, the, the more it gets exploited by people who want to take advantage of holes in your operating system. And once a Windows ends at support, they won't be patching those holes anymore like they're doing these days. So, uh, so the advice that I have is, uh, is twofold. The, the, the first is if you're not ready to go all the way to Windows 8, I mean, Windows 8 has gotten a little bit of a bad rap too because they've really changed the user interface to make it more attractive for people who are using tablets and touchscreens. And there was a little bit of a backlash against uh, the original Windows 8 interface and being able to get to simple things like the start menu. It's my understanding that, uh, that in Windows 8.1, which is going to be released here fairly soon, they're going to fix a lot of those issues. They're going to make it a little bit more user-friendly. So, uh, you know, if you buy a computer today, it'll come with Windows 8 on it. I, I, I recommend that you either do one of the two things, either wait for Windows 8.1 and then buy a new computer with that operating system on it, or head over to Amazon, uh, head over to, uh, to, to one of the online services that's still sending, selling Windows 7. You can buy, just check this yesterday, you can buy Windows 7 on Amazon for 90 bucks, I think. And so uh, definitely a good deal, uh, uh, an inexpensive upgrade, and definitely something that's going to be supported for a while uh, if you're not quite ready to make the jump all the way to Windows 8. What do you, what do you think about that, Dennis? you have any other thoughts? Well, I, I recommend the blog post for a, a number of options, but the uh, I, I'm just sort of horrified with the idea that people would be using a, a computer that's so old that it has Windows X, XP on it. You know, um, what I remember when I last used Windows XP was uh, it took so long to boot up, and you know, and plus you had all these issues. I mean, people just had like a routine of things they did. Um, while they waited for Windows XP to boot, and so once you move to a to a newer computer, definitely, but but to a newer operating system, that's the benefit you get. And that you know that was the you can talk all you want about Mac versus Windows and features and stuff, but to me, the thing about 
about Max is they start up so fast and you don't you don't have that you know whatever 10 15 20 minutes that Windows XP was was taking to set up and and the security issues I just think are extreme uh on Windows XP that that really gives me a lot of concern um you know when people are are, are still still using it so I I think that you know with with upgrading if you're if you have a computer that's running XP I I think the idea of upgrading uh, operating system on that computer probably is not the the best move. So I always like to upgrade, you know, upgrade operating systems by getting an, a new computer is is my my typical approach. And I would say that that's that's what I would suggest is is doing both things at once, um, and and really focusing on getting a good understanding of what the security issues. If you decide that you're going to stick with what you have, and or maybe you know repurpose that computer uh, for something else. And then in connection with, with the new operating system, you, you just got to look really hard at those solid-state drives these days because the difference in the boot-up times is, is so great and the performance is so great that you can start paying less attention to the operating system and more attention to what you want to do on the computer. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one-tip website or observation. You can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. For those of you who have upgraded all the way to the latest version of Microsoft Office, when you hit the insert tab, you will notice something that you probably haven't seen before. And one of the things you can insert is an app. Uh, you can insert an app into your document and use the web to enhance your work. And when you uh, insert an app, you get a couple of choices. Uh, there's a, a Wikipedia app where you can do some research. There is a uh, There are dictionaries for the English language, Spanish language, Chinese language, a couple of different languages. Um, there are uh, apps for uh, creating pre-designed Avery templates uh, to, to do labeling and things like that if you happen to use Avery products. There are a, a, a bunch of very interesting apps that you can install to improve your Word experience uh, by working with something directly inside of Word uh, that may have been you know, from another company, uh, not just a Microsoft company. And I think it's an innovative use of uh, of, of putting things into the word processing and, and your Excel program, too, if you are, want to put something into a spreadsheet. And what I have, uh, Tom, is, is a LinkedIn tip. Um, probably by the time people are listening to this, I'm guessing that the second edition of LinkedIn and One Hour for Lawyers that uh, Allison Shields and, and I wrote will, will be out and, and published. Um, and one of the, the – as we wrote the second edition and – as we spoke about LinkedIn, one of the things we realized is really important was bringing LinkedIn into the real world. Um, and so taking advantage of what's, what you're doing in LinkedIn and turning it into something that you do in, in the real world. And so the other day, I was, was talking to a friend of mine and realized by looking at LinkedIn that there was another person, another friend of mine in the same city who they were like a great match. They just needed to get together and talk. And and so what I wanted to do was to introduce them by sharing their profiles and say, I would like to send each of them the profile of the other person, and then they can decide to, whether to have lunch or whatever they're going to do. And, and so rather than to write a long, rambling email and introduce them, uh, there's this great way that if you go onto one person's profile, um, 
there's a, a little box that says suggest connections, a little inverted triangle by you drop that down. There's a thing called shared profiles. It pops up a message box. You type in uh, the name of the other person and then you can share the profile. And I just think it's a great way to provide that information to somebody um, that you're making the, the introduction to. Um, so they can they can make a decision, and probably that will lead to them picking up the phone or, or you know and getting together for lunch, uh, which really is the point of making that introduction. So it's called sharing a profile. You can find it in the help section at LinkedIn, but it's really straightforward. You know, once you once you're on somebody else's profile. So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Information on how to get in touch with us, as well as links to all the topics we discussed today, is available on our show notes blog at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site. And if you have questions or suggestions for upcoming episode topics, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet at tkmreport. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. And you've been listening to the Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by rating or reviewing the podcast on iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.